This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. Good morning, this is Gary Plummer. You're listening to the I Test for Two with Clark and Ira. edition of the I Test for Two podcast. I'm Clark Judge. I'm Ira Kaufman. And we're joined today, as we are each week, by Ian Glendon, our Hall of Fame producer. Now, Ira and I are both Hall of Fame voters. And guys, good news, because today we're going to be joined by two special guests. One is Nick Canepa, who's a columnist for the San Diego Union Tribune, longtime friend of mine, and he knows Ira. He's long known him as well. Um, but he is a former Hall of Fame voter. He's going to talk to us about the decline and fall of San Diego Jack Murphy Stadium. Also, the 39th anniversary, Ira, of the Freeze Bowl is coming up Saturday. The Bengals and the Chargers. I think it was 59 below that day. Whew. Whoa. You guys don't have that kind of weather down in Tampa, do you? Uh, <laughs> you, uh, you weren't at that game, were you, Judge? I, I, now, come on. I was not. No, I was too young. <laughs> <laughs> and we're also going to be joined by... National correspondent for ESPN and Hall of Fame voter Sal Palantonio is going to talk about everything, the course of the season this year, the state of the uh, NFL, and also the Hall of Fame vote coming up. But first things first, guys, I, I mean, how did your holidays go? Ira, Christmas, uh, New Year's, uh, Happy New Year, by the way, to both of you. But how did it go past, past week? Very quiet, Clark, for the first time in 30 years. You talk about streaks. Forget about the Bucks 12-year playoff drought. <laughs> We ended a streak of about 30 years. We always went to my brother-in-law in Orlando. Uh, they used to cook the turkey, all the trimmings. We didn't go this year, Clark, because he has an open door. 10, 15 people come walking through. Smart. And we decide, especially with the vaccine yeah. on the horizon, we stayed home. I got a couple of lobsters, Clark, boiled them up, and uh, we had a wonderful time. Sounds pretty good. How about you, Ian? Uh, you know, it's funny. I went to seafood ride as well. I uh, had some nice bourbon salmon, very small uh, gathering with my mother and my grandmother. So uh, it, it was quiet, but nice. And um, yeah, it was definitely not uh, what 30 below zero. Uh, There's no snow. It was a little <laughs> chilly, but the sun was out and it was nice. So Okay, well, thank goodness for all of that. I'm glad it worked out well for you guys worked out well for us as well. But we're now coming to the close of 2020. And Ian, if you can flag down Kenny G, because I think he's walking through the studio. Would you stop him and ask me if he could play him? Wow, that was quick. That was quick. Yeah, he sounds great. So 2020, a lot of us are glad that it's leaving. It's gone. I'm going to ask you guys, each one of you, I will start with you. But what is the one thing you're not going to miss from 2020, and I'm talking about the NFL here. There are plenty of things outside of the NFL not to miss, but what's the, what's the one thing that you're not going to miss from the NFL in 2020? 
I will not miss the wretched play of the NFC East. Clark, a combined 17 games below the 500 mark. And I'll throw this out at you two gentlemen. The distinct possibility of the 6-10 and 10 New York Giants hosting the 11-5 and five Tampa Bay Bucks in an opening round playoff game. My that is a bad for look for the shield, Mr. Judge. <laughs> My wife is hoping for that. <laughs> but you know what? As bad as the NFC East is, what's the one division we're paying attention to this weekend? There's three teams that can win it. Anyway, Ian, what's the one thing uh, you're not going to miss from 2020? Well, it's, look, it's, it's got to be the Patriots. Uh, I'm sitting there watching that game last night. It's not because, you know, I'm disappointed. Of course, I'm disappointed the way the season went, but I, I'm tired of the crazy takes. I'm tired of the um, <clears throat> the fan base and the media in the, fan, you know, in the, in the region uh, unable to evaluate quarterbacks. Uh, right. I think Tom Brady ruined that for everyone. He's, he's you know, he's kind of screwed that up. So I'm going to be happy to see that chapter of, of Patriots history get turned and, and, and head into uh, 2021. Yeah, fair enough. I think a lot of people here in New England would join mm-hmm. you in. Uh, me, it's it's the COVID reserve list. I mean, it's a joke what's going on here. Denver plays a game without a quarterback. You had Detroit last week lining up without an offense coordinator, defense coordinator, a head coach, and several assistants. And then you had Cleveland the next day lining up without their four top receivers. I mean, I just don't get it because – Roger Goodell always talks about the integrity of the game, guys, but there is no integrity of the game in competitive disadvantages, and I just hope that's gone for good. Anyway, let's move on to the next subject. What's the one thing that you are going to miss from 2020? Ira? All right. Now, Clark, uh, our producer is not going to want to hear this, but <laughs> what, what, uh, what I'm going to miss is that uh, mug of Bill Belichick as the realization comes upon him, how much Tom Brady meant to uh, the fortunes in Foxborough. Uh, they'll move on, and, and Belichick will be fine going forward. But for this one season, Ian, the look on his face was priceless. <laughs> okay, Ian, you're up. Uh, hey, look, I-, I was one of those people who realized the impact of Brady's departure long, long ago. So I, I was right ahead of the curve, I guess, when it comes to that. But uh, I-, I am going to miss the, um, I guess, the the cardboard fans. I don't know why. Yeah. And-, yeah. and I'm assuming <laughs> I'm assuming we're going to get fans in the stands. But um, I- I- there was just something about it that, I don't know, you've kind of gotten used to it now. So it's going to take some time to get used to actual people in the stands again. But uh, I always thought they were funny and, and certainly the ones that were more creative and, and trying to take a jab at that team, you know. Do you have one of those Bud Light cardboard? <laughs> <laughs> I should have. We, we, sh- we should have uh, we should have arranged having uh, the three of us in one yeah. of these games uh, next next time, you know. Maybe we can. Ira, <laughs> I, I think you must be looking over my shoulder because I had something – other than this, until last night, because I, I love Fitzmagic. I love watching him play. I loved what he did last weekend. But it was superseded by Bill Belichick, an infuriated Bill Belichick last night, taking the phone and throwing it into the bench. And you know what, guys? It might have been the best throw for the Patriots that night. But it was, Ira, as you said, the realization of, what my God is going on here? And I would like to know who was on the other end of that call, Ira. Could have been Bruce Arians saying, hey, Bill, thanks so much for sending me Tom. I mean, look what's happened here. 
<laughs> God almighty, that was that was priceless. I mean, that's a meme that's going to be going on for weeks. Something else I'm going to miss from 2020. And it's something that they might have prefaced before Bill Belichick threw that phone last night. But it's the decline and fall of San Diego Jack Murphy Stadium, later known as Qualcomm Stadium. Now, I spent 10 years covering that team and I spent them with our next guest, who's a longtime friend of mine and yours, former Hall of Fame voter and now San Diego Union Tribune columnist, Nick Canapa. And Nick is talking to us today from San Diego, where, Nick, I, I don't think it's 59 degrees below zero, is it? No, it's not, but it's uh, it's a little cool for San Diego. We got a, a lot of rain yesterday. Okay, well. Which was we, welcome. Before we get going, Ira, Nick said to me before we came on, ask me a good question, and it's one I don't know the answer to. Maybe Ian can chime in on this. He said, with Dwayne Haskins, he got released this week, right, by the Washington Redskins. Yes. Has there ever been a quarterback to start one day and be released the next. <laughs> well, I got to go back and Buccaneer lore because if anybody <laughs> did it, it was the Buccaneers. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't, uh, I don't know if that's ever going to be matched. Especially the 15th game of the season. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like this was in the second or third week or something. I mean, <laughs> no, that was real. And, and like I told Clark earlier, and by the way, hi, Ira. Hi, uh, uh, Ian Glenn is on here. Too, win, so say hello to Ian. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> if they win the game, does he cut him? Good question. Well, Clark Ray Perkins was fired the the day after a win against the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, no, <laughs> nobody nobody gets fired after a win. He yeah, did. but that w- that win would have put him in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, you're right. right. So anyway, right. that's a good question, Nick. I've got another question for you, Nicky. San Diego Jack Murphy Stadium's coming down. They're demolishing it. I'm going to miss it. Are you? Oh, abs- oh absolutely. Uh, like I say, there's not hasn't been anything going on there now for like three years or four years. So, uh, you know, the city just allowed it to to go to seed, and uh, and now uh, you know the funny thing was USA Today ran a story, I don't know, about three weeks ago when the 49ers didn't have a home. Yeah, and there was and there was talk about uh, San Diego being one of the cities where they might go. Right, the, the stadium was being demolished. I mean, the stadium there were that there they were ripping it apart. There was no field. It Could was, they have played at Petco Park next? Uh, no, they couldn't have got it done in time. They to play in Petco, you have to uh, make some adjustments, like on the center field wall. Yeah, I think eventually, like maybe next year. I think the Holiday Bowl may be played there next year because they're that's the San Diego State's new stadium, too small stadium won't be done by then. So well, it's, it sounds to me like when you said there was nothing going on there the last three or four years, that basically what was going on there is the same thing that's going on in your house. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's been longer than three years. <laughs> Hey, Clark, I, I got a couple of questions for our distinguished, distinguished guest, Nick. I, I hope so. That, that might be a stretch, Canifer, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go there anyway. Nick, I'm, I'm going to ask you about a running back. <laughs> Nick, a running back from the early 80s, um, and I'm looking at this guy, Nick, and you tell me, uh, I thought he was a hell of a talent. By the time he was 30, Nick, he was done. His name's Chuck Muncie, and... I want you to tell me how good this guy was at his peak. Uh, he had a fantastic 1981 season. 
Two years later, he was basically done at the age of 30. Uh, what is the Chuck Muncie story with the Chargers, Nick? Well, as Clark will tell you, because Clark covered him briefly, uh, Chuck was a great guy. But but he had an incredible number of demons running around him, and and uh, he just never solved it until much later on in his life. Uh, but he he's one of the truly great athletes I've been around, and, uh, and I've been around a lot of them. I remember I remember Steve Ortmeier after he came here from from the Raiders, and that was after Chuck was here, uh, told me that the Raiders thought that Chuck Muncie was the greatest football player who ever lived. And that means Al Davis thought it because he was wow. the Raiders. Uh, he was an incredible talent. And, and you know, he got, a, he got a bad rap because of the drug thing. But, you know, that was a personal thing with him. But, like, um, the Tim, Fox had, Tim, Tim Fox had the great line on Chuck. He said, Chuck will Chuck will do anything you want him to do on Sundays. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> now, a tremendous athlete and a good guy, and did a lot of great work with kids. He did after he got after he got out of the game after he got out of jail. He was in the Metropolitan Jail downtown here for a while. Hey Nick, I want to ask you about your beloved town for a second. Um, Nick, I'm looking at San Diego. It's a major market. It's not a minor market. And I don't see hockey. I don't see the NBA. And now I don't see the NFL. Nick, uh, wh why isn't San Diego being considered uh, for more sports beyond baseball? I don't understand. Well, uh, well, one thing, leadership stinks. Leadership in the city. We've had like five mayors since... We've had like five or six mayors in this century. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, uh, you know, I call them ham and eggers, uh, the city councilmen and the, and the, and the mayors. And, uh, you know, they, they let it all slip away. Number one, they let the stadium go to seed. And um, you think about it, uh, the stadium was built six years before Arrowhead. And you could eat off the floor in Arrowhead. In this place, they just they 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 never maintained it. You know, it's it was like it, and and people would see that from the blimp and say, "Oh, I don't understand. It's a great looking stadium." You know, that's it, and inside it was rotting away, and and they never did anything. They never did anything to uh, to fix it. And you know, I I wrote I wrote at least fifteen years ago that the Chargers weren't going to continue to play there forever. They couldn't. I'm I, and. You know, I hated the way the Chargers left, and you know, classless as usual. But I, it's hard. You, you got to blame the city for their for their leaving. You can't blame the football team for not wanting to play in that dump anymore. And you know, they become a laughing stock in L.A. But you know, that's that's their own that's their own problem. But Nick, what about a downtown um, Nick a downtown arena for hockey and basketball? Not even yeah. considered. I think they're building, and uh, right now I'm. It looks like they're building a a large arena on the site of where the old arena is in the Midway District. In their in their in their wisdom, they're completely. They're, they're supposed to. Clark knows all about the Midway District, but they they plan on putting ten thousand units in there, and just imagine what the traffic's going to be like there when they oh. get ten thousand people living in there. But 
I don't know what they're going to put in this 17,000-seat arena that they're going to do there because I can't ever imagine San Diego getting an NBA franchise. I just can't. I don't. You, you, you talking about at the site of the sports arena? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They approved. They approved the, in the last election. Of course, they didn't approve a new stadium downtown, which wasn't going to cost them a dime because it was going to be on, on TOT tax. Um, but they approved this. They're building a 17,000-seat arena there. And for what? I have absolutely no idea. Maybe it's the How's Your Fan Club, Nikki. Well, <laughs> they, could, they could do it in Qualcomm right now because there's no seating available. <laughs> We're speaking to Nick Canepa, San Diego <laughs> Union Tribune, former Hall of Fame voter. Nikki, what's your favorite memory of uh, Jack Murphy Stadium? You know, I think, when I think about it, there's been more disappointments than, than, uh, than uh, good things when you think about what's happened down there. I mean, you know, the Padres were in the World Series in '84 and and '98, and it was there, it was there a lot in life to come up against two of the best baseball teams of the last half century. Uh, I, you know, I was there for the Holy Roller, and you know, I, I you know, I, I was there for the for the for the 1979 loss to Houston when when uh, the Chargers had the best team in football. They they beat the hell out of the uh, Steelers and the and the Rams, who were the Super Bowl finalists that year, going into the playoffs. They had a home field all the way through, and Houston came in without uh, Earl Campbell, Dan Pastorini, and Kenny Burrow, and beat them. Fouts threw five picks. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think the best football, best pro football game I can remember in there was was the uh, Miami game in the playoffs where they. Where they beat the Dolphins and went to Pittsburgh, and after that, and won, and then went to the Super Bowl where they got slaughtered. But um, well, since you it mentioned was fun. it was fun. You were there during, and you were there during the later part of the of the Air Corps years. But those were fun. I mean, that was yeah, it was, that was as entertaining as football guy. That's exactly what it was. It was entertaining. And since you mentioned Miami, Nick, I'm going to go shift to a different subject, which I mentioned earlier, which is the Miami game. 39 years ago this Saturday, January 2nd, 1982, the epic in Miami, and you know all about it. I know you weren't there, but it turned out to be a 41-38 Chargers overtime defeat of the Dolphins in the divisional round of the playoffs. That was a great game. I watched it on TV. I remember it very well. Chargers jumping up 24-0. All of a sudden, Miami's back in the game with 17 second-quarter points. Where would you rank that game among all-time playoff games? Well, I think it's I think it's the best one I've ever seen. I, I mean, I'm obviously a little biased. I wasn't covering the team yet, but and like like I say, I was it was actually the first game I ever taped. But um, it was we just got in our first VCR and it was the first game I ever taped. And you know, it was there was great drama in that game because number one, the weather was just so brutally hot and humid, and. And of course, the Chargers had the the greatest drama queen who ever played, Kellen Winslow. Kellen, yeah. And uh, and uh, he uh, and he had he had the game of his life, and they were up twenty four to nothing, and Miami came back, and uh, and it went back and forth, missed field goals, blocked field goals. I think Kellen blocked two. He did, yeah. Um, it was uh, it was a it was a great game. And that picture of Kellen coming off the field with I think Seavers on one side and. Who was on? Was it uh, Moosey on the other side? It, it, might have been, it might have been. I can't remember. I've seen that picture a thousand times, and I'm. Yeah, anyway, it's a great game. I remember that game. I do. Um, 
Hey, Nick, you mentioned the guy's name, uh, and we should talk about him because uh, he was a big, big figure in pro football, and that's Coriel. Uh, Nick, um, what was your relationship with him? What kind of guy was he? And do uh, you believe he deserves a bust in Canton, Nick? Well, uh, he was a he was a, a, as Clark knows he was he was really a good guy. I mean, it, it, Don Don was the guy kind of guy you 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 rarely quoted. I think on, on game day on and on game day I don't think he had any idea where he was. Um, <laughs> but I'd known him. I mean, I went to San Diego State in the late '60s when he was coaching there, and I and I'd known him as well as you could know a coach when you're a student in college uh, from 60, from like 68, 69, something like that. Um, and he revolutionized the game. I mean, I, I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, he never went to a Super Bowl. He never won a Super Bowl. But you could watch football for the next thousand years, and every game you watch, his influence is going to be in it. Because every time you see mass defensive substitutions, He's the guy who brought it around. They did not know how to deal with him. And, uh, I mean, we'd sit there and we'd watch things and defenses would just have no idea what they were doing. I mean, it was, a, it was like they were playing a college team. It was a joke. And, and you know, everybody stole from him. He's, he's kind of like Sinatra, you know. I mean, everybody <laughs> stole from him. Every senior came along after him and stole from him. And, and – and that's what happened with Don. And the amazing thing about this whole Hall of Fame thing, which upsets me more than anything, because number one, he's been a finalist. As a matter of fact, I think he's been a top 10 guy. He has. And so this was a year I thought for sure he'd get in because they had the two coaches going in the, in the anniversary thing. So, so big David Baker goes on – Goes on uh, TV to 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 get Cower and uh, and uh, Johnson in Johnson, yeah. Who have never been finalists. He they jumped right over him, and I'm not saying Tom Flores isn't deserving, but once again they jumped over him with Flores. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know I I don't quite understand the thinking behind it. I know the big thing is that he never got to a Super Bowl, right. and. Uh, I mean, there are coaches in the Hall of Fame who never won a Super Bowl. But, I mean, I mean, they got there. I don't know if why, why getting there is, is – you get to a Super Bowl and lose four times. I mean, that's that, – I guess that's great. But uh, well, he changed the game, and, and, and that's how you got to look at Don Coryell. Couldn't agree with you more. And, 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 Nikki, Jimmy Johnson was a finalist once before the Centennial Class. Right, right. And I'm not knocking Jimmy Johnson yeah, yeah. at all because I'm, I'm surprised he wasn't in earlier because – he was that football team. He he built it. Like Don's been a finest like six times. Um, yeah, he, he built the deepest roster in the history. Uh, I, I, in the I, history. Got, I got a couple last questions for you, Nick, and then we got to run. But one is um, the next weekend, and I'm going back to that uh, 1982 uh, uh, playoff, uh, but the 1981 season, but the 82 when they were playing. The Chargers went from Miami to Cincinnati, where it was minus 59 wind chill the next week, and they lost. A lot of people said, well, they lost because of the, the weather. You say no. They lost because they were beaten by a better team. Oh, they they absolutely, you know, I'm not saying that they wouldn't have gone in there and won the game because with that offense, they were certainly good enough to beat anybody at any time. But, uh, I mean, Cincinnati came to San Diego that same year and 
and beat the hell out of them. I mean, I think I think the Bengals won that game like 40 to 17 in San Diego. So why the Chargers were going to go back there and suddenly, you know, beat them? Okay, you know, it was. It, I mean, it was hard. They came off 90 degree weather and humid weather to fit minus 59 below the following week. I mean, that's that's a tough make. But you know, Cincinnati played in the same weather. I don't know. I used to. Uh, Used the Bengals were to playing in fifty nine below zero weather. <laughs> yeah. and, and the last thing is, since we were talking about San Diego Jack Murphy Stadium later Qualcomm at the beginning of this conversation, I'm going to end it that way. Do you have anything that you're getting from that stadium? Anything that you keep from that stadium? Any memento? Yes, my cousin Michael. They they've been auctioning off seats. I mean, like you have to buy two seats yeah. and, and signs and different things in the stadium, and and my cousin Michael bought me a uh, at auction the uh, working press sign from the uh, from the press box which was same, same sign it's been up there you walk under it a million times and I'd love to have that I did too when he came to town but uh, hey Nikki it's a great it's a great gift and I also have the visiting press sign from Balboa Stadium where Whoa. I used to run there that's a great place that's a great place it was a great it was a great place to watch a game down San Diego that's another thing we're talking about the city here there is no place to play a game here San Diego State had to go to Orange County, had to go to uh, Carson to play. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> the, the, the stadium basically condemned, is basically condemned. And now, they've, of course, they've started tearing it down. They own the stadium. San Diego State owns that property now. They're, it's going to be an auxiliary campus, and which is great for San Diego State. I think the stadium they're building is too small, but that's another matter. But they had to go to Orange County. I had to go to Carson to play this year. Oh. oh no, the largest stadium in San Diego right now is 7,000 seats at, at Southwestern College. That's it. Well, that would hold the Charger fans. Yeah, right now it would. <laughs> no. Hey, Nikki, we've got to run. Thanks so much for the time. Always good talking to you. Happy New Year. And go back to celebrating the 2021 World Series now that you've got Blake Snell, sorry. Again. They got you, Darvish, too. Oh, yeah, you, right. Darvish, too. Yeah. Happy holidays, Nick. Happy holidays. Same to you. Take care of yourself. Good yep. seeing you guys. Thanks, Nikki. We're going to take a break from commercials. When we return, we'll sit down with ESPN Sal Palantonio. This is the eye test for two. Well, you've seen him on TV. I assume you've probably heard him on radio. And now you can listen to ESPN national correspondent and Hall of Fame voter Sal Palantonio right here, right now on the eye test for two. And Sal, thanks so much for joining us and happy new year. Oh, happy new year. Happy and healthy new year to all yeah, of us. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Sal, congrats on 25 years with the wor worldwide leader in sports. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, you got to be proud of that association, Sal. Yeah, I, I wish my dad Vito was alive to celebrate it with me. I mean, the, the idea that a, a C-plus student who went to state school could make a 25-year career at ESPN is pretty miraculous, considering his father came over on the boat from Italy. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a great accomplishment for my family and for Italian-Americans everywhere. Sal, I like to throw you a curveball, a drop shot once in a while, Sal. A little drop shot sometimes. So I'm going to ask you about this, Sal. To me, nobody is in better position to answer this. About the Philadelphia sports fan, Sal, 
you love to watch people, you know, the body language. You, you love to see what pe- makes people tick. So, Sal, the Philly sports fan, from a distance, I think they're a special breed. And I'm going to give you a couple of names. Bobby Clark, Allen Iverson, Pete Rose. And I think those are the people that they embrace, Sal. But I can't really think of somebody on the Eagles, Sal. I'm throwing that Brian Westbrook to you. Who, who would be the guy, Sal? I don't think it's McNabb. Who, who would it be on the Eagles, Sal? Well, let me just move my screen a little bit. You see that guy right there catching the football in the end zone? In Super yes, Bowl I 52? do. That's who we call Nikki Touchdown Foles. Nikki Five Fingers Foles because he steals what you have. And he is a, <laughs> he, he, he's a perfect he's a perfect character for South Philadelphia. You know, uh, it, it, he he really saved a franchise. And in, in many ways, I think he embodies the rocky sort of um, mystique of the town, a guy who comes up off the bench, takes the team off the mat and delivers the championship. So people always ask me, Ira, and I know this is sacrosanct. I get it. And I've been covering the team since I was at the Philadelphia Inquirer. So this is my 32nd year covering the team. Our first game I ever covered was the Fog Bowl in 1988. So I'll tell you a story about that in a second. But 32 years of covering the team, I say Nick Foles is the number one athlete ever to put on a Philadelphia Eagles uniform ahead of Reggie White, maybe tied with Chuck Bednarik because he brought a a title in 1960 going two ways. And, you know, they gave him a color television – after that 1960 championship and he was because he was going to retire. And when he came back in 61, Ira and Clark, they asked for the television back. (laughs) (laughs) We do that on this program. (laughs) But so I go, I, so, so I go Nick Foles, Chuck Bednarik, Reggie White, Tommy McDonald. uh, You know, that that's my top, that's my top four or five right there in an Eagles uniform. But I always loved Allen Iverson. I miss Allen Iverson. He was just great copy to begin with. He was just an incredible electric pyrotechnic talent. I miss the doctor, Julius Irving. I see him all the time uh, when, I, when I used to go to Sixers games. And, of course, Bobby Clark is a legend. He, he doesn't live too far from where I live. And you see him around town. He goes to every charity event. And man, can he hit a golf ball. So, you know, that, you know, people, you got to remember, I covered, I covered city politics before I covered the Eagles for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I was not a sports writer by trade or by ambition. And so I knew the body politic of Philadelphia before I got into sports. And I understood, hey, um, everything is over the top, as I like to say, but also under the table, if you know what I mean. <laughs> whatever, whatever is going to get them through the night is going to happen, baby. Hey, Sal, I want to bring it to the doors of Canton for a second. I'm going to throw out a couple of names. You tell me you're a voter, Sal. I love having you in that room. I love uh, your comments, yay or nay. Uh, Sal, here we go. Donovan McNabb, Ricky Waters, 
Eric Allen. Uh, a few comments on each of them, Sal. Right. First of all, I love being in the room. I love the erudite uh, Clark judge always keeping uh, us honest in the room. And then, of course, the ever entertaining Ira Kaufman. <laughs> I always tell Ira if I could deliver a presentation like Ira Kaufman, I'd probably be Walter Cronkite. I mean, he's so good. <laughs> Thank um, you. I'm going to say I'm going to say Clark and Ira. I'm going to say yes to Eric Allen. I think he's the original shutdown corner. Um, I don't know if his numbers stack up in terms of picks or passes defensed, but he was basically the player who invented the idea that you would stick one guy on an island on a wide receiver, and that was it. It would cut off half the field. That, to me, is he's the quintessential guy. He was the guy that Buddy Ryan said, okay, if we're going to call the 46 defense, we got to have a guy who can cover one-on-one, and Allen was that guy who really invented that position. And a lot of others came after him, but it's always the argument we had about Bob Hayes. Can you tell the story of the league without Bob Hayes? And you can't. And that's why I always thought that Bob Hayes deserved to be in. And I think Eric Allen should be in. Uh, As for Donovan McNabb, I'm on the fence with Donovan McNabb. I always have been. I think he deserves a vigorous conversation in the room. I think you guys would agree with me on that. The fact that he fell short of a Super Bowl title is is an important part of his story, but not a disqualifier. Um, and then what was the third one I wrote? Ricky Waters. Ricky Waters. I've always thought that Ricky Waters deserved also a, a vigorous conversation along with Roger Craig. I mean, yeah. you know, I think Roger Craig and Ricky Waters are overlooked And, you know, since we have Ian as our producer, I have, you know that I'm in the room pushing, pushing hard for New England Patriots to be in the Hall of Fame. When you look at all those Chicago Bears from one Super Bowl title in 85 that are in, all those Oakland Raiders from one Super Bowl title in 76 that are in, and here we have the New England Patriots who had six titles since the year 2000 and we kind of trickle them in when we feel like it uh the fact that we had to wait so long for ty law and you know god bless uh ron borges for the you know the way he presented ty law but man oh man richard seymour absolute yes a guy who i think needs more consideration is willie mcginnis still has the all-time lead in sacks in the postseason and another guy who nobody ever puts it even close to the conversation, Iron Clark, is Teddy Bruschi, starting middle linebacker on three Super Bowls. I, I always go, he, Teddy, if you go like that, he goes like this to me. <laughs> After the third one, when I interviewed him, he said, Sal, that's three. Just like that. <laughs> three fingers. Hey, Sal, since you're talking about overlooked teams and we're speaking with Sal Palantonio, ESPN National Correspondent. Since we're talking about overlooked teams, this is what bothers me. It's not so much New England because we still have a chance to do something there. It's the 49ers of the 1980s, specifically offensively. I covered that team in the 90s. But offensively, from that team, you've got Joe Montana and you've got Jerry Rice. Jerry Rice was there for three Super Bowls. Joe was there for four. You don't have anybody else. You're going to tell me they carried that team 
You have Roger Craig, who was a finalist once, 2010. But you go back to Ricky Waters, who's later in the 1990s. He played on the 94 Super Bowl team. He hasn't even been a semifinalist, not even a semifinalist. But you look at that 49ers team from the 1980s, and I think people would say to you, whoa, I think of offense. They have more people defensively who are in. Offensively, it's Montana and, and it's Rice. Yeah, Steve Young's in, but he wasn't the starter then. It was Joe. Oh, I'm all on board with Roger Craig. I vote absolute yes. And I think Ricky Waters deserves a vigorous discussion. Totally. Yeah, me too. I'm with you. Um, go back to what I, I was asking about Philadelphia. I want you to go back to the Philadelphia sports scene for a second, specifically to one guy, and that's Carson Wentz. Do you expect him to be with the Eagles next year? I understand I what the, 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 the uh, contract problems are and all that sort of thing, but assuming um, that, that someone could work out something with him, would you expect that he stays with the Eagles next year or that he's somewhere else? I think he stays. I think they want him to stay, and I think he wants to stay. Um, mutually exclusive are the financial aspects of right. this, which are huge, right. right? And the fact that if you decide to trade him, all of the financial implications for, for both the team that takes him and for you, for the Eagles, Only. take that mutually exclusive, set that aside. Clark, I think they want him on the team next year, and I think they are going. He wants to be back for sure. Well, but I would say, from an outsider's point of view, Jalen Hurts to me looks like the future of that team. I no, mean, I'm Carson not so Wentz. sure about that. I'm not so sure about that. I think there's a lot of, if you if you look at, uh, listen, it's hard to evaluate either Hurts or Wentz within the context of what this team is right now. Quarterback is the ultimate complementary position in the game of football. You are so dependent on so many people doing their job correctly and being doing it at a high level. To begin with, you've had 13, Clark, 13 different offensive line permutations due to injury on that team. And Jalen Hurts is getting the brunt of that now. He was sacked six times by Arizona. He was blitzed like crazy uh, by the Dallas Cowboys. They hit him continually. He was sacked. They forced him to turn the football over. And this is the Dallas Cowboys team that hasn't really put up great numbers or great production on defense all year long. So it's difficult to judge what you have in Jalen Hurts or Carson Wentz, given that. Uh, and then you take other aspects of the offense and you put it all together. And again, um, you can make an evaluation, but you can't make a judgment yet on either one of them. And I would say having both of them, not to compete, but to figure out what you have, at least until June. Because if you look at the contract for Carson Wentz, if you right. decide in the end that Jalen Hurts is the guy, you can really only trade him after June 1st. Yeah, you correct. can't do it beforehand right. or else right. you will absolutely be crushed. Now, I expect the salary cap to go up, uh, not, not to go up down as far as people expect because of one – the deal they're going to make with Amazon is going to be big, 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 huge. Two, the 17-game schedule is going to mitigate that. The addition of the playoff game this year for both uh, conferences is going to mitigate some of the loss. You're still looking at about $4 billion worth of loss. You probably are going to be able to make up about $4 billion if you add the Amazon deal that they're talking about, $100 billion over 10 years 10 billion with a b per year sal i want to ask you about a guy that you know very well and i believe you're very fond of sal and that's andy reed 
Andy Reid, Sal. Question. If Reid does not lead the Chiefs to that comeback win against the 49ers, um, it does does he then become a fringe Hall of Fame coach? Did that put him over the top? And should he be a no-brainer, Sal, in terms of an overwhelming resume? If he didn't win the Super Bowl, he would be fringe, in my opinion. Winning the game definitely gets my vote. I don't know if he's first ballot. Well, we don't do that anymore because now it's it'll be a coach's committee. I mean, right. Uh, I mean, I think he's he'll get in for sure. Uh, I think they're I think they're going to be hard to beat this time, Ira. I, I really do. I think. Listen, um, the piece I did after the Super Bowl for Sports Center was about how Mahomes brought them back against Houston, uh, Tennessee, and San Francisco. Um, and without Mahomes, Reed does not win that Super Bowl. We can agree on that. But he did pick Mahomes, and he has coached Mahomes, and he clearly has picked the players around Mahomes and is responsible for the design, strategy, and tactics of that offense. But you still have to have a trigger man, um, as anybody knows. I mean, Clark, you know, if Bill Walsh doesn't have Joe Montana, um, you know, would he have found somebody like that? I don't know. Montana, you know, and when you watch a guy like Montana or even Joe Namath, their ability is like Mahomes, quickly process information, make decisions that are the right ones all of the time, and then deliver the football with such quickness and accuracy. It's very rare. You go back and you watch Namath. The ball came out of his hand so quickly. The trajectory, velocity, and rotation on the ball was so quick. And the accuracy was so amazing that it's unbelievable that he got hurt as much as he did because it, the offensive line must have been so bad. Uh, but it's just sad that he had those knee injuries. And then Montana, to me, is the next level because – Montana's release was so quick and he was so darn accurate. And now Mahomes, he's just those guys with nitrogen in his veins. I mean, <laughs> he really is. He really is. Sal, Sal you lead me into uh, my, my last question for you, Sal. Thanks so much for doing this. Sal, the, the, the coach-quarterback relationship. Sal, you know that a lot of people were very curious about 2020 in terms of Belichick and Brady. Who was more responsible? We're going to find out. Well, Sal, the Bucks are 10 and 5, and, and the Pats are what they are. I'm not sure that necessarily tells us anything. But, Sal, I, I think Belichick will be back. It might take him two or three years. People want to bury him. Sal, I, I don't think we can say that it was all Brady and Foxborough. Okay, well, we'll disagree about that. I'm going with Brady over Belichick. I've Me said too. it a lot this year. I said it at the beginning of the year. I always thought that uh, Brady was the driver of the bus. I mean, you can have the coach, as I've just said. You can have a Doug Peterson, but if you don't have the magic of Foles, it's not happening. You can have the design, and design matters. As I like to say on our matchup show, um, design matters. But if you don't have talent to execute that design in the game of football, it's just not going to work. And to me, I will take Brady, and I think the proof is without a doubt – Overused phrase, but it's key. 
the proof is in the pudding this year. And people are saying now that Belichick has his biggest rebuild of all time, his greatest um, task of all time. No, 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 no. Time out, people. He had that last year. Basically, they are where they started at the beginning of the year. Where was the succession plan? They had to know that Brady was leaving. Where was the succession plan? Don't tell me it was Jared Steedham with a, you know, a backstop of Cam Newton. So the Steedham experiment failed, and the Cam Newton experiment has yet to pay the dividends that they want it to. And also, what you are seeing is what's catching up with Belichick and that entire operation is that Brady papered over all of their poor personnel decisions. They always churn the roster every year, wide receiver, running back, get rid of lawyer Malloy, get rid of Ty Law, doesn't matter. Richard Seymour, he can go, it doesn't matter. Why? Because you always had 12 to make it better. He was the guy who was going to make it all better for Belichick. With, Bell- with Brady out of the picture, now you're seeing that all of those personnel decisions can't be fixed by Brady's presence on the field. Yeah. And that's the other thing is the opt-outs. They had more COVID-19 opt-outs in the summer than any other team. So the players were smart enough to see those players that opted out and took care of their health and their families before their profession were smart enough to see that the succession plan for Brady was not going to work. So we'll, we'll take a step back and take care of ourselves and our health and our families. So I always said Brady, and now I think the proof is overwhelming. And I got the Bucks and the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Yeah, and, and you better be in Tampa, Sal. You better be here. <laughs> well, I'll be there, baby. I'm coming to look for you too, man. I'm coming to look for Ira. Ira the K, baby. He's the sage of Tampa. I couldn't agree with you more, Sal, on that conversation. It's, it's, I'm not going to get into it, but the, the numbers just weigh so heavily in favor of number 12. But um, in any case, I wanted to go back to something you said before about Kansas City, and I do agree with you. They're going to be hard to beat, but they remind me a lot of the 2011 Green Bay Packers. Remember the Packers were coming off of a Super Bowl win. They had the young quarterback that nobody could stop, Aaron Rodgers. I remember people saying, it's a dynasty waiting to happen, of course, in an era when we have no dynasties except when Tom Brady's on your side. In the last 20 years, we've had two teams, two organizations, go to -to back-to-back Super Bowls. Of course, Brady's done it more than once. And then Seattle, they went 13 and 14. They lost the 2014 game when Marshawn Lynch couldn't get the ball at the one. But the fact of the matter is, is that I look at um, what's going on in Kansas City, and they were the Super Bowl champions. They're probably going to go 15 and one this year. They're going to be hard to beat. But I got to believe, like Green Bay, because in that year, 2011, Green Bay was 15 and one. They got beaten in the first round of the playoffs by the Giants in Lambeau when there were people in the stands. I got to believe there's somebody out there that's going to get these guys. My question to you is, who's the biggest threat in the AFC to the Kansas City Chiefs? Clark, I just don't see one. And it's interesting that you mentioned um, the fans in the stands. So I'm out there covering games, as you know. I'm one of the Lone Rangers still out there going from city to city. And here's what I hear from players and coaches, and here's what I see. The psychological signposts of a football game are always set by the energy in the stadium, by the fans. 
Those signposts have been lifted out of the ground and thrown away. So when you go to a game, now you listen for the players to set the energy. And it's very hard to do. If you don't have a peerless leader on the field, I use peerless, not fearless, peerless, a guy who's an outlier in terms of determining a team's psychological profile in a game. It's very tough to sustain that kind of energy through four quarters on the road. So I think it'll be very difficult for any team to go in there. I don't think Josh Allen has that yet. I think Ben does, but Ben's hurt. His knee is hurt. He can't drive the ball. And one of the things I do on the matchup show is watch quarterback play a lot. And I think it'll be tough for the Steelers to go in. I think it'll be tough for Buffalo to go in. I think every other team will have a lot of trouble because they don't have the quarterback play that Kansas City does. And I think the only team that can go on the road against the number one seed and win is Brady and the Bucks because Brady can set the tone. His intensity level, his experience level is good enough to do that. Now, he's learning because they had trouble setting their energy against the Giants at MetLife. Real big, bad time. Same thing in Chicago. Same thing in Chicago. Same thing in Chicago. Same thing in New Orleans. And the players tell me the same thing. They say when you have an enclosed bowl that's high, that it feels like you're playing in a cave. And there's a lot of echo. And so they, re- they don't want to talk as much because the other side can hear what they're saying. So it's tough to set the energy without tipping off what you're talking about on the sideline. So it's a very nuanced thing, I understand. But people need to get understand. The, and even, even um, Rogers talked about it. When they had problems putting away Charlotte, Carolina, in the second half of that game, they came out smoking and then they had to lean on their own energy in the second half. And it wasn't there, Clark. Yeah, yeah. Right. It wasn't there for four quarters. It'll be really tough on the road. Really tough. One last one. And this is a nod people to are not I... talking about this. It's really interesting. They're not. It's, it's a story. Well, no, I know that. That's 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 it's, right. It's a story that's gone under the radar is how these players and coaches are trying to create their own energy in empty stadiums for four quarters. Hard because you can't experience that at home. You can't feel it. You, all you're seeing is just, you know, you're hearing the announcers and you're hearing the players on the sidelines. You can't feel anything. And if you so, watch the NBA right now, the NBA looks like players practicing in a gym. They go yep. up to the three-point line and they shoot. And it's hard for them to get the energy even to drive to the basket and challenge their opponents. Right. Um, and, and the last one here, since we go back to what I was talking to you earlier about, which is the Hall of Fame, I'm going to do this as a favor, and maybe it's a favor, I hope, to Ira Kaufman. Um, you and I and Ira voted uh, this month on the 15 Hall of Fame finalists, okay? Um, and I assume John Lynch is going to be back this year, and Ira hopes so too. And if he is, he's going to be an eighth-time finalist. He was a top 10 finalist last year, and Ira has to present him every year. I think Ira's optimistic, this is the year he makes it. I am optimistic, this is the year he makes it. 
But what about Sao Paulo Antonio? Are you equally optimistic that finally, after seven years, Ira Kaufman kicks in the door and John Lynch walks in? You know what it is, Clark, is I think we all want to get him close, but we don't want to put him in because we're so entertained by Ira's presentation. (laughs) (laughs) And people who listen to this podcast are too. They understand that. (laughs) I guess that's a good way of saying I'm not answering that question. (laughs) It's a... a, surreptitiously, I think secretly, we all want Ira to stand up and present John Lynch just one more time (laughs) while we're having our boxed lunch. (laughs) Hey, Sal, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Like Ira said, congratulations on 25 years at ESPN and uh, happy new year to you. Hey, thanks a lot. Happy holidays, Sal. Hey, you know, as I like to say, stay positive, but test negative. Good advice. Thanks again, oh, thanks, thanks so much. That was ESPN national correspondent and Hall of Fame voter Sal Palantonio and Ira. Sal's got Tampa and the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. You like that? I don't mind it. I, I think that would be a very entertaining game. Um, everybody would focus on Brady and Mahomes, but uh, you know what? There's a uh, there's a lot of other starters in the game that that will decide that matchup. Whoa. I think our fans like what you just said, and they like that matchup too. They know what's next, and what's next is our weekly I Was There segment. And this week, Ira, I was there. I was there. Where where were you, Mr. Judge? Where were you? I was there in San Diego, Jack Murphy Stadium, which we were talking about in our first half to uh, Nick Canepa about they're taking down now. But I was there when Fouts took it down. It was the 1988 retirement of Dan Fouts's number 14. It was during halftime of the 49ers Chargers game that year. And, and I know, you know, that sounds like, well, there's nothing unusual. And it really wasn't, except for this. But Alex Spanos, please come to the microphone. <laughs> yes, that was the late Alex Spanos. Then the owner of the Chargers booed as he was introduced. And an interesting story behind that, guys. I got to know Dan very well after that. I certainly knew him when I was covering the team. But I talked to him later, and we talked about that. Dan and Ira, let's just say, um, Dan just, he didn't see eye to eye with Alex Spanos. They had their issues. Dan liked to needle him. Alex wasn't the kind of guy like to be needled anyway. Dan is going to be retired. He's a popular figure there. We've got a sellout crowd. It's going to be a big deal. And shortly before he goes down, Alex Spanos was not a popular guy in San Diego. He lived in Stockton, flew down for the games. Not a popular guy. Said some things that people didn't like. Anyway, before he goes down, Alex Spanos says to the PR director, Rick Smith, I'm not going down. He goes, what do you mean you're not going down? He goes, I'm not going down. They're going to boo me. They're going to boo me. I'm not going down. So send somebody else. Rick then tells Dan Fouts, and Fout says, tell Alex, if he doesn't go down, I'm not going down. He goes, what do you mean? We can't have a ceremony. He goes, exactly. He better be there because he knew what was going to happen. He knew this crowd was all on his side and all against the other guy. So that's what transpired when Spanos was told Fouts ain't doing it. He realized he had no choice. <laughs> and so that's called that's called leverage, Mr. Judge. That's called leverage. leverage. And Dan Fouts had it. So they're bringing the house down now in San Diego. But Fouts brought the house down then 
when he had Alex Spanos come out on the field and 50 some thousand people booed him in unison. It was, uh, it was, it was pretty interesting to be there. Anyway, Ira, as, as usual, final thoughts here. The, the last week of 2020, last week, what do you got to say? All right, Clark, you tell me whether I'm uh, stretching this, but of all the great plays of the 2020 season, all of them, the one that I hope we don't forget about is that pass that Ryan Fitzpatrick made when he was getting his face mask yanked. It wasn't the greatest pass in the world, but he got it off, Clark. He got it off, and it was a completion, and it destroyed the Raider chance at the playoffs. Uh, I want to say I had Fitzpatrick here in Tampa, Clark. He's one of the great backup quarterbacks in NFL history. The guy is unbelievable. You don't want to play him 16 weeks, Clark, because his flaws will be exposed. But in terms of energy coming off the bench, this guy's Don Strzok, the, the, the next version. What a play. What a play, Clark, by Fitzpatrick. He's Don Strzok, absolutely. And I know Ian probably doesn't remember Don Strzok, back up to Brian Greasy and then later Dan Marino. But what a backup. The only difference between the two guys to me, Ira, alma mater. Don Strzok went to where? Virginia Tech. Where'd Fitzmagic go? Uh, that'd be Harvard, where he's an economics major. And he was also the 2004 Ivy League Player of the Year. That's what you do know. What you don't know is he was one and one against my alma mater, Dartmouth College. You know, Clark, what you don't know about Fitzpatrick is he used to walk around with a Rubik's Cube in his hand, and he used to solve it in about 6.5 <laughs> seconds. The guy's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. brilliant. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned him. I'm glad you, Leave 2020 on an upbeat note. Thanks, Ira. That's going to do it. Ira, tell them where they can find you on Twitter. At iCalfman76, Clark. Ian, you're up. It's at I-G-L-E-N-31. I'm at Clark Judge T-O-F. If we don't hear from you there, you will hear from us here on the iTest for Two, and that'd be next week. Thanks for listening, and the happiest, happiest of New Year's, and the healthiest as well.